Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Kip McDaniel, the Chief Content Officer and Editor-in-Chief at Institutional Investor. In the early days of Capital Allocators, Kip joined me to share his insights about the CIOs he covers as a journalist. You can find that show in the feed right after this one. This time, we got together to talk about Institutional Investor's business and the lessons he's learned in producing content for allocators. We cover the four key characteristics of a well-written story, the increasing use of PR firms by asset managers, and the essential importance and tricks of the trade of effectively packaging content. Kip stays true to his roots as a storyteller and offers a few great ones here again. 
please enjoy my second conversation with Kip McDaniel. Kip, great to see you. Great to see you again. Thought it would be interesting to just start talking about your business at Institutional Investor. I'm happy to tell you everything I can. We're part of a public company, and it is public that we are going through a strategic review of the business, with one possibility being a sale of Institutional Investor. So I'll tell you everything I can that is public. <laughs> I've spent my career writing and interacting with allocators, but I really love the business side of what Institutional Investor does. It's certainly my honor to run certain parts of the business that a lot of the world won't see. The media brand is the most prominent thing we do, and I can share how many people read it and the growth there. But I spend a good part of my time on stuff that's behind the curtain as well, and I really enjoy it. Why don't we start with what most people knew II for the print publication, which has gone away. Why don't you talk about that strategic decision, how you got there? It was not an easy process. II was founded in April of 67 by Gil Kaplan. It was started as a print magazine, quickly went into the events business and the research business. Today is the day that the All-American Research Team was released for the 48th time. And so there's these things that I was known for, and the print magazine was one of them, partially because it was really first to market in the 60s. And you saw at that point, not just in finance, but New York Magazine was made a month later. Rolling Stone was made within days of II. There was an explosion of like cheaper printing and ambitious young people who came out in all these industries and made these publications. And II was a publication. There weren't that many editors. One of the first editors was Adam Smith, a guy named Jerry Goodman, who wrote under the pen name Adam Smith, was really the first one to get to know and profile Warren Buffett. You had some great editors over the years, right up to my predecessor, Michael Peltz. These are people who care deeply about this publication and were really good at telling the stories that needed to be told. But over that time, the internet was invented. And I think no one at II would say we managed that transition wonderfully. I don't think anyone else managed that transition wonderfully. Media was notoriously slow to change that. Some people really did well with that. I think a business insider who's really embraced digital only and it's worked for them. The Huffington Post beforehand, really genius business models. But it came time, we look at the financials and printing a magazine for 100,000 readers and shipping it all over the world is not a cheap endeavor. And so around Christmas of 2017, it became very apparent that we had to change something and change something quickly. And some people will think it was a discussion between having a print product and having no print product. It was really more of a discussion about what do we want to be? Do we want to even be in media? And so those were pretty heady days. It was around a two-month process, and I worked really closely with Vicki King, our publisher, Diana Fano, our CEO, and James Lavelle, who became our COO, trying to figure out a solution because our belief was that institutional investor needed to have a media presence. It was still the best marketing for the rest of the business. And so we went through a lot of different iterations of what we're going to do. And by the end of that, it was March 1st, we made the decision to announce that we were going to print our last edition on April 1st. Not a joke. It was after 50 years, I think it was 508 issues. 
we would publish our last issue. I would say when we told the newsroom, they were upset. I was upset. You're ending something that's happened monthly for 50 years in this industry. But very quickly, I think the newsroom and everyone else realized that this was actually a hugely positive change. We actually now spend more on journalism than we did before because we're spending less on printing and shipping magazines. The process of making a print magazine is very onerous, and it's actually a bad process. A magazine has to be made in multiples of eight. You have to have 88 pages, 80 pages, 72 pages. It's just the way magazines are printed. And so if you lose a story at the end, you either have to fill the page with junk or take out stories. And there's always a deadline. You have 6 p.m. on a Friday. Your files need to be at the printer in you know, Minnesota somewhere. And so inevitably, and this happens, and reading magazines myself, I think I can tell when it happens, you're putting in stuff that isn't ready, that you're not yet ready to put out in the world, but because of the constraints of the medium, it has to go out there. And so very quickly, the newsroom realized, wait a second, we can publish stories when they're ready, we have a much less lumpy workflow. It's always going to be consistent, consistently high pace, but consistent. And the stuff will only go into the world when it's ready to go into the world. Now, the resources changed. We cut some heads. I was sad to see some people go. We re-resourced it, made it more variable costs, right? More freelancers. But the end result has been culturally phenomenal. And just statistically, in both our revenue I won't give exact numbers, but II Media, standalone media is profitable, and it wasn't before. It's a great place to be today. And just from the readership, we just ended our fiscal year. I look at the stats pretty much daily. And whereas in 2017, we had 1.1 million U.S. readers, in 2019 fiscal, we had 2 million plus readers. Those readership stats are being mimicked in other major markets where you'd expect it. The UK, our readership is up just as much. Australia, a lot of these countries with large institutional money management markets, we're seeing that rise. Now, nothing's as big as the US. That's to be expected. We're all based here. But we're 18 months on, culturally phenomenal, financially phenomenal. And just in terms of the product we're putting out, we're proud of the product we're putting out. We're always trying to make it better, but we're proud of it and readers are responding. So you quoted a couple of statistics, and we're all in this kind of data-driven world now, but how do you know what the readership was when you were sending out print magazines? You didn't. This is, I would say, it's still a fuzzy area. There's more clarity now, but you do surveys. You know who you're sending it to, but there's always a mix of sending it free and paid. There's Publishers always claim, well, it gets passed around five times, so I do that. And so I know there was a lot of frustration on the side of marketers, and there persists in being frustration on the side of marketers with print products because it is such an opaque market when it goes out in the world and you have no idea if it's going to be read. Now, I'll, I'll say this, and I'm happy to mention competitors. I have a lot of respect for P&I. I have a lot of respect for what Amy Resnick does. You go to an asset management waiting room. And P&I is always sitting on the desk. That's the one thing I dislike about getting out of the print business, that it used to be P&I, institutional investor, maybe plan sponsor, maybe CIO, my old publication. And now generally, you only see P&I. I would love insight into their business. I can try to figure it out from the outside. But that's the one downside, that it's not there. But to go back to your question, 
It's a source of frustration for everyone paying for ads that they never knew exactly who was reading it, and they didn't know how many eyeballs were on it. And now that you've transitioned over to online, what have you found from the data? It warms a journalist's heart that the most read stories of the year are always original, investigative, long-form work. So again, we just ended our fiscal. We did a strategy meeting on October 1st and went through all the most read stories to see what's working and what's not. And inevitably, the stories that have the longest engage time, that's readers spent reading it, are the ones that have also the most page views and the most readers. It's hugely heartwarming as someone who likes doing that. And so we've put a lot of resources into making two a week long-form, feature-length, magazine-style journalism. And it's really been worth it for us. When we started talking about this shift, we also started talking about this question that asset managers have of how do they either use medium or how do they communicate with their clients differently? And I know you've spent a fair amount of time thinking about this and would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so part of my remit outside of running the media brand and being the editor is I run a, we call it an institute, it's the Chief Marketer Institute. And so we have the CMOs or heads of institutional marketing come and we put on a conference for them to talk to each other about their challenges. So I can help them because I sit on the opposite side of that often, but also I get to hear their conversations. And there's still a lot of learning to happen in that world. There are some people in the marketing department's asset management that are very smart, but still they're still struggling with some of the tools they've been given. There's always that cultural element that marketing within asset management organizations can be viewed as a secondary function, sort of a base level support function. And so one of the things I get from them and talking to a lot of people is there's actually still a lot of frustration, not as much as there was when everything was done via print, but still, they rarely can get person-level data on who's reading what. The holy grail for an asset manager, let's take Bridgewater as an example, and I don't have actually much insight into their marketing side of it. The holy grail for Bridgewater is they send out the daily observations every day, their morning Bible of this industry, and they know exactly how long Chris Aylman has read it, where he stopped reading it, where he maybe copied and pasted. That would be the gold standard. Now, I don't know if Bridgewater's done that. If they have, kudos to them. But most asset managers haven't got that granularity yet. And they are confronted with all this technology they have, right? You can get satellite data on, on Walmart's parking lot, but I still can't figure out if Paula Valent is reading my piece of thought leadership. And so they're still struggling with that. And I think that there's a real business opportunity there. You have to get around privacy issues. You have to be able to tell the Chris Aylmans and the Paula Valentz of the world that you're doing this. But for someone to actually figure out a mechanism that an asset manager can produce meaningful content and know when clients and potential clients are engaging with it and how is very much the holy grail of asset management marketing because then it's just going to refine the selling process, the upselling process, and the client experience process. So given that we don't have those tools today, what have you learned from these conversations with the CMOs about sort of best practices of what works? There's no consensus. They produce a lot of different types of content, everything from academic-based thought leadership You think of what AQR does, right? 
to the daily observations from Bridgewater, to what PGIM is doing, which is very impressive on a larger scale of getting marketing pieces on, let's say, fixed income out there. But there doesn't seem to be any consensus on what works. And so what has been the most interesting conversations for me, perhaps not as interesting for them, I don't know, is that trying to tell them what we're learning, what has resonated with our audience, what are the tools we use to turn a story from something that's going to get a thousand views into something that's going to get 10,000 views. And more importantly, something that's going to get read for 30 seconds versus something that's going to get read for 30 minutes. And so I've spoken to a number of groups about CMOs about that. And I think that's been an interesting discussion about how we can both take from each other. Because in the larger scale, my job is editor of II and their job is not all that different. They are trying to engage the world's most prominent institutional investors via various mechanisms, whether it's written word or video. I'm trying to do the same thing, engage those same people. Now, marketers have to take it a step further. They have to then turn that into some monetary value for the firm. I just have to get those eyeballs and then we can serve ads against it. But it's those tools that we use have been interesting to discuss because there's a lot of crossover there. I'm on the edge of my chair here. (laughs) What are those tools? They're not specific to finance, but the same principles apply. And I sort of steal them from the people who are better at my job than I am. Um, Graydon Carter, who was the editor of Vanity Fair for around 25 years. Vanity Fair sometimes gets thrown around as like a flippant magazine because there's always a star on the cover. But some of the best journalism produced in the last 25 years was coming out of Vanity Fair. Hidden behind this, the star or starlet is a great piece by Bill Cullen about hedge funds. So Greg Carter said there's four things that make a great story. The first is access. You need to get access to people that your competitors aren't. At Institutional Investor, I benefit from those editors that came before me so much because they built such a good brand that I, I, we can credibly call up anyone in this industry or more likely nowadays, and this is a whole other vein of topic, they're PR people. And they will respond because of what my predecessors did. They did a great job building a brand. So when we want to do videos with Henry Kravis or Ray Dalio, it's really just a scheduling thing, which is phenomenal. You know, that is unusual. The second is what Graydon Carter would call disclosure. I would call revelation. They have to tell you something they're not telling someone else. I'll use this example. It's sometimes hard interviewing folks like Ray Dalio or Stephen Schwarzman because they are so smart and so well-practiced. They will never tell you anything that they don't mean to tell you or that hasn't been strategically decided to tell you. And so getting that well-known person, famous person, to tell you something they haven't told a P&I or a plan sponsor or a Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal is hard. That's very hard. The third is just narrative, and that's good writing. I think you get good at writing by reading. I think people who read II will know that this is important to us. I think of Leanna Orr, who I've worked with a long time, is a phenomenal writer. Julie Siegel, phenomenal writer and has better contacts than anyone I've ever seen in asset management. Amanda Cantrell, as well, knows this space so well, is a wonderful writer, actually wrote our second most popular story of last year, And so I'm blessed with people who were taught very well in their high schools and journalism schools, but that's very important. And the fourth is the hardest to get. It's conflict. I hate puff pieces. Everyone's read them. 
II's done their fair share over the years as well. Everyone has. There's just no conflict in puff pieces. There's no why am I reading this? You're not going to get conflict in everything, right? If you're doing a write-up of a survey, there's no conflict. But when you do a story, what Amanda or Leanna or Julie are writing, we're always looking for that nugget of conflict that you're trying to suss out. Now, there's a lot of forces aligned against you on that. One is for an industry that thrives on disagreement, you're trading against someone else at all times. No one wants to disagree with each other. Right? There's a real sort of almost gentlemanly spirit to this industry outside of the short sellers on Twitter. The second is you have an army of PR people who are fighting you at every turn to stop the story, and it is getting worse and worse and worse. Their tactics are getting much more aggressive. I believe there's four PR people for every journalist now. I suspect it's even higher in the financial industry. There are some firms that I have a ton of respect for in that space. I think of like Jen Prozac and what she's built. I really respect the people at Prozac. They treat the journalists with respect, even when they're disagreeing. But there are people who asset management firms hire, and they are, to put it very bluntly, they're nasty. They're underhanded. They will threaten. They'll scream. That's what's stopping you from getting that fourth and most essential part of the story, which is highlighting real conflict, not trying to create clickbait, not trying to make a story where there's not, but just trying to tell the actual story that's going on out there. So those are the four things that we apply to everything, whether it's written word, live content on a stage, anything. So if we flesh through that from the perspective of an asset manager trying to draw attention, which is similar but different. Access, not a problem. The disclosure revelation, probably not a problem. I would say they need to drill down harder. I mentioned there's a lot of agreement here. We don't need another white paper explaining what happens to corporate pension plan funding ratios when interest rates fall, right? Now, a marketer may think that's real disclosure, I would guess that the corporate pension CIO does not feel that's real disclosure. So drill down more insight and less kind of common knowledge. And I would say if you don't have anything to say, you don't need to write it, right? I think sometimes seeing into these marketing divisions, whether it's politics or busy work, they feel the need to put out a lot of stuff. And I know that CMOs wonder, is this actually getting consumed or is it just falling into the ether and no one's seeing it? Then when it comes to narrative and quality writing, you mentioned you read a lot. Do you read with a different lens than someone who's just casually consuming information? I probably do because I'm always trying to learn, right? I actually have no formal journalism training whatsoever. My worst grade in college was the one writing class I took. And so I'm always reading to for enjoyment. A lot of times about the structure of an article. I mentioned the New Yorker. The New Yorker, I think their articles are the most well-structured things I've ever seen. They're getting the best writers, and they have a great group of editors, including their senior editor, David Remnick. To me, a well-written piece is beautiful. And so we try to emulate that. And so when I look at thought leadership I'm seeing too, I'm probably looking through that lens as well. Now, the benefit for marketers is that it's a buyer's market for journalists. I know some firms have hired ex-journalists, to do this. But I think that the best way to get the narrative writing, you cannot teach that past the age of 18. 
I think that's something that happens. You know, I have two children. They're learning to write now. That's very important for me because I know that if they don't get that now, if they're not reading and writing, they're cutting off huge swaths of professions and enjoyment later on. And so I think the best way for asset managers to do this is to hire externalists or often hire PR firms who have externalists on staff to do that for them. Right. And what does a well-structured piece look like? There's different formats. We try to start every major long-form piece scene setting. You don't want to start a story at the beginning. If anyone listening reads, they'll get what I'm saying. If I'm writing the story of Ray Dalio's life, I know it fairly well because I've read the book and I've written many things on him. I don't start the book saying, Ray Dalio was born on Long Island to the son of a jazz singer, and then he went to college. That's sort of chronological. It doesn't work. So you'd say, what is the Ray Dalio, the biggest win he ever had? Let's say he just called the markets right. Let's start last year. December, markets are crumbling. Bridgewater has, has bets on that will benefit from that. How you'd start that piece, and I'm just making this up, is on December 22nd in Westport, Connecticut, a group of five individuals sat at a table. Like Ray Dalio sat at the head of the table talking about principle number 48. That's how you do. You set the scene and then you move back. Then you take a step back. Ray Dalio was born on Long Island to the son of a jazz musician. And so it's about those hooks that the point is always to make it more painful for the reader to leave than to stay. They just have to read that next section to figure out what's going on. That is the key, whether you're writing a feature for Institutional Investor, feature for The New Yorker, and I think a piece of thought leadership for an allocator to consume. The same principle applies. All right, let's touch on this last one, conflict. So as you are writing a piece for your investors, for prospects, how does that concept of conflict come into what makes a piece that that audience will be attracted to? You can't manufacture it. And when I say those first three are in every story we try to do, the fourth is not always there. Conflict starts with the pitch, right? We get pitches from our own staff and from our external freelancers. And I'll use an example. It's a controversial one. And one that has caused us a fair amount of pain and that to this day we stand behind entirely because there's never been one error found with the story. And it's a story of UC Regents and Jagdeep Basher. I've had numerous meals with Jagdeep. I very much respect Jagdeep. I think he's one of the most charismatic people I've met in this industry. We know a lot of people who worked for him. Leanna Orr who is the deputy editor alongside Amanda Cantrell. This was around a year and a half ago. Came to me and said, I'm hearing some stuff about disgruntled employees. And my view is, check it out. You got to go and you have to do the legwork. And so there's that kernel during the pitch of conflict. There might be something there, but you need to go and make sure it's real. Partially because, as I said, we want it to be real. Partially because... People have lawyers, and we need to be able to back this up in a court of law. And so that took, I believe, three trips out west by Leanna as a story develops about getting people on the record. 
you know, this is not a problem for asset managers, right? They, by definition, have them on the record when they're employees. We have to convince people to trust us that they'll first tell us often things off the record. They'll say, okay, here's what I'm seeing. And then it's a conversation about getting them to come on the record and use their name, which with most stories, as much as we can, you always want a name there. It's better than the alternative. And so I'd say conflict develops over time. And it goes through many steps, always checking to make sure you're not believing your own BS. Journalists love writing hits. They want to write big hits. And so my job as an editor is to sort of say, okay, are you sure? Does this person have an ax to grind? Does this person want to tell you that off the record because they're actually trying to get someone fired? Like you have to go through all those steps. Then obviously lawyers get involved. Uh, we have a hefty legal bill to make sure that we're doing everything as we should. And then you always go to the source itself, right? You give everyone a chance to respond to questions you have. And that is where a lot of the real tension happens. That's when people start getting very angry and hiring lawyers themselves and calling up editors and screaming and that kind of thing. But it is the conflict part. It is hard. It is intensive. It's long. I want to touch on maybe a lesser conflict, but you mentioned the increased use of PR firms. And from an allocator's perspective, there's this constant conflict of you want a manager who you like managing your capital, but maybe not too much capital. How have the asset managers used PR firms historically, and how is that changing? This is oversimplifying. There's two types of PR firms. There are firms that are there to actively get a positive story out. So using Jen Prozac. Jen has built a business largely on firms that want to engage with the broader world in a positive, helpful way. Jen does a lot of the work for them, and they have a lot of tools, and that's been a long-standing thing. There's crisis PR. Asset management, like every other industry, has bad actors, has bad events, sometimes intentional, sometimes just, you know, we screwed up. And oftentimes there is another layer of people who come in and are crisis PR. Those are the people that are screaming on the phone. I fear that that is becoming more common. And I can use an example here because this actually made me very angry. I'll use names. And we wrote about this. So it's not like I'm, I'm not giving you a revelation here. We were writing a story about MIO the internal fund tied to McKinsey. It's a lot of retirement money and partners capital. A consulting firm that also does like advising of distressed companies, there are some inherent conflicts there. And we're not the only ones who covered this, the Wall Street Journal. And the New York Times covered it very well as well. But we have, obviously, this is right in our wheelhouse. This is that money is being allocated to asset managers. And so we had a freelancer dig into it. And you start asking questions. We asked McKinsey a set of questions. And they had worked with a firm called Brunswick, another firm I really respect. And they have a new CEO, Nick Diogan, who I've worked with when he was at CNBC. A lot of respect for Nick. But when it became apparent that we were writing a not entirely favorable story to them, it was a strategy I had only seen once and never used in this way my general counsel started receiving letters from McKinsey lawyers. And they're never outright saying, we're going to sue you. But they were, and I view a letter coming from a lawyer talking about an article is an implied threat to sue if they don't like the article. 
And at the same time, McKinsey or a group within McKinsey had hired another person, a guy named Mike Citric. Mike Citric, I've spoken to him many a time now. Again, always pleasant with me, but Mike Citric is hired in some tense circumstances. It's public record that Mike at one point represented Jeffrey Epstein and perhaps some other unsavory clients. And so we kept getting these letters, and my general counsel was sort of saying, what are you guys writing about? And I said, we are doing everything as we always do. We're reporting. We're asking for their feedback. Any article that we are ready to publish will always be run by our lawyers to make sure we're adhering to American law. And in this case, because we also received a letter from a U.K.-based law firm representing McKinsey, it's easier to sue for slander in the U.K., we had to have it checked against UK law. And I think that the PR team behind McKinsey and their lawyers thought that we would not publish or at the very least dull down the story because we were afraid of them. Our response was to tell just what I told you in the article. The article is called The Story McKinsey Didn't Want Written. And then we started the story by saying, during the reporting of this piece, McKinsey sent multiple threatening letters to institutional investor. We stand by this piece entirely. And they have not pointed out one error with the piece. So that was the most extreme version of PR, legal, and a company, in my opinion, trying to put pressure on someone not to publish something that was true. I've seen it one other instance. I don't want to go into it because they are so litigious. But I fear that that will become more common. And it's not in allocators' interest in the end to have only content coming from asset managers. They need independent third parties, whether it's your podcast, whether it's P&I, whether it's the New York Times. I think there's a total value for the ailments and the violence of the world to have that as well as the communication from their asset managers. What are you seeing on the promotional PR side, not the crisis management, in the use of the gem prosecs of the world by asset managers? As that one group is getting meaner, I think the gen prosecs and generally the Brunswick's of the world and others are actually getting better. They're getting people who understand the industry more. They're getting better at working with us collaboratively, understanding what our needs are. They're giving us access to people that perhaps didn't have access before. A classic example is Bridgewater, and Prozac has rep Bridgewater for a while. They've been wonderful when we want to speak to people at Bridgewater, whether it's a big name or whether it's a subject matter expert. They're getting us access, and I think that Bridgewater has really bought in to the idea that this is a good thing. We will sometimes be at odds. There will be calls between myself and Prozac that they don't love, but there's a a real respect there and a proactiveness about it. That's a big change in my time here. Another thing for us, a lot of these firms do research. A lot of them are as much academics as traders. And we like having research to write about. If it's a valid study about allocator behavior, we want to write about it. If it's Coming from academia, that's great. But AQR puts out a bunch of great research. And so the PR people are often the middleman saying, hey, AQR is this wonderful piece of research. Do you want the first crack at it? And we'll always say yes. And so I think that it's a selection bias in my mind. But the firms that I really enjoy working with and that I respect a lot because I think they're focusing a lot on the 
client service and then client engagement are more proactively working with us in a really respectful manner where I don't have to worry that they're going to be screaming at a 24-year-old reporter on the phone while I'm out of the office. Yeah, we mentioned Bridgewater a couple of times, AQR a couple of times. Does it tend to be the largest firms or the ones that put the resources into that and then get your attention? Generally, yes. I think there's a, almost a linear relationship there. Having watched these firms for a while, I've always been surprised that more asset managers don't invest more in the client service and distribution side of their business. Asset managers are 99 times out of 100 started by investors, right? That's just the way it is and it's the way it should be. But as they get bigger and they realize that inevitably they will not always be good, they will never have bad years. And you talk to allocators and the worst thing these firms can do is clamp up and not talk. The firms that over-communicate during crises are the ones that have the sticky assets. And so because they are able to invest in the client service function and have people dedicated to this role, I think those are the firms that have the sticky money because in the inevitable periods of down performance, they can be hugely communicative to their clients. They can be value add in other areas beyond pure alpha. One of my now good friends, Ted Noon in Acadian, he calls it relationship alpha. That's how he thinks about it. He's that he runs some distribution there. And I thought that was a beautiful way of putting it. There is investment alpha, but people and asset managers should not discount the relationship alpha involved in this business. These are people, right? Chris Aylman wants someone to talk to when something's going wrong, not just to shoot the breeze, but because he has real questions and he wants someone to pick up the phone because he's written a $100 million check to them. I want to circle back to this idea of tools that you've learned and developed that you can share. So we talked about what makes for a good article. What are some of the other tools that you share? This is a big one that I think I was not attuned to enough. One thing that we really focus on is the packaging of the content. There's nothing worse than having... Julie Siegel, our senior staff writer, write an in-depth feature and spend six weeks of her time and nights and weekends on this and have no one read it. It means I haven't guided them correctly. They've made no impact. And so one of the biggest things that helps ensure that doesn't happen once we've decided on the topic is what we call the packaging of the article. We redid our website around two years ago ii.com had turned into what people in the industry call like Tokyo at night, ads just popping up all over the place. So we trimmed it down and tried to make it beautiful and simple. We're pretty proud of the way it looks. That's important. Design is really important. We spend a lot of money on the artwork that accompanies the pieces we do. Then that goes down everything to like the font. Not something I have expert in. I, you hire experts, right? I have a creative director named Ed Johnson, who is a former journalist himself, hugely valuable. Can just I defer to him entirely on how does this look? Does this look as good as it can be? And then there's packaging, titles. If I have one skill on earth, one skill, it's writing titles for an allocator audience. <laughs> My staff jokes about this. I love working on titles. So we're coming out with a piece later on today, and we'll spend 15 or 20 minutes. We already have a bunch of ideas for the title, but we'll spend 15 or 20 minutes just batting around ideas around what is going to make this red. And there's a number of principles we do there. I'll talk through them as well. 
The first is authentic. We've tried to make AI more energetic than it was in the past. We want to still have a gravitas that AI always had, but we want to have an energy to it. And so all our titles, we always think, are they authentic to that brand we want to put out, which is really thoughtful but energetic? The second is aligned. This is the anti-clickbait thing. Clickbait effectively is a title that doesn't match the content. It's a promise that's not delivered. And so when we title an article, it's got to be aligned with the actual content that it's sitting over top of. There's no worse way to ruin your brand quickly than to do that. And that applies for us. It applies for Wellington. It applies for Acadian, everyone, right? Appropriate is important as well. This is more than just a title, but people consume media in all these different mediums. I use the print versus the digital. It's not something we worry about anymore. But when you read an article in the New Yorker in print, the title is often a pun. It's like three or four words. You go online and look at the same story. The title is different. It's much more descriptive. And that's not just for search engine reasons. It's because people figured out that puns don't really work online. You need a more descriptive title. So it needs to be aligned to the medium it's in. Twitter, We Will Forever Story, have like three or four tweets ready. And it'll be maybe more snarky on Twitter. It'll call out individuals who are themselves on Twitter. So if we're writing a story on AQR says factors suck, they would never say that. But that would be our title online. If we're on Twitter, it would say like, at Cliff Asnitz AQR. You just have to use the medium to its advantage. Then there's the tactical and the strategic part of it. Strate- strategic, there needs to be a consistency. When I give talks to people, I actually bring up a P&I title and an II title. And nine times out of 10, people can tell the difference. P&I, and again, immense respect for what Amy Resnick's doing there. You can tell a P&I title. It's sort of just the facts, ma'am, right? And that's actually important. I think it really is important for them to do that. Ours is more magazine-y, for lack of a better word, more literary, perhaps. You want to be consistent with that. We don't want to jump back and forth. We don't want to be a P&I title one day, a CIO title the next day, a New York Times title, which often have very specific, they love commas in their titles. So we try to be consistent with that. But there's also adaptive. Title, taste, change. This is where reading other people's stuff comes into play. And I would encourage asset managers to hoover up their competition's work because of this. Title preferences change. We often joke about the titles that we know are going to work. Right now, there's two models that basically guarantee you success. And it'll change. But the one model is the quirky, rich, and like technical world of Two Sigma. The blank, blank, blank world of. Inside the blank, blank, blank world of. That just is catnip right now. The other one, and it actually is so pervasive, there's a ton of jokes about this, are the two sentence headlines. Trying to use an example here. I'll just make one up. Going back to Bridgewater, the old foil. Bridgewater had a phenomenal 2018 period. Then January happened. Those work really well. But those work really well right now. Something will come along and taste will change. And we will notice it because we track our stats too. And we will adapt with the times. And so those are the principles used for packaging. And then the title, I cannot stress enough 
for asset managers. Now, they're constrained by compliance departments, and they are constrained by an immensely conservative industry, brand-wise. I can do stuff with my titles that Wellington cannot do. But I would encourage people to really think hard about how do I cut through the clutter? I've just had a team of PMs and writers sit down and give 12 hours of their like scarce time to writing this piece about fixed income. I don't want to screw it up by calling it our views on fixed income. You've just taken this gift and like thrown it in the garbage. And so packaging is a really important part of what we do. All right. More tools, more tools. It's not that complicated. <laughs> no, you know, we always think about distribution as well, but that kind of takes care of itself. And I know it's not as applicable to the asset management world. SEO is table stakes. Having your website optimized for search are table stakes. But us and institutional asset managers, you're never getting a mandate via like no one types in $100 million core fixed income search help. No one types that in, right? If they do, I'd love to see it. And we're not getting traffic that way either because we're not looking for that. People come to us because they expect to come to us. Email is still by far the most helpful medium. And that is the case for marketers too. We do a study for marketers through this institute I mentioned. So they can benchmark the efficacy of their emails versus their competitors. What are the open rates? What is working? What's not? Email has not been disrupted to any meaningful degree in this space. Social, I think social is double-edged sword. For us, media brand, it's important. Social for an asset manager is, if I'm sitting in that world... There's a lot of long discussions about whether the benefit outweighs the cost. It's not directly related to institutional asset management, but JP Morgan, they had sort of one of the snafus of the year socially where someone authorized by the company tweeted out, millennials, the reason you're not saving enough is you spend too much on coffee. The response was swift pretty rich coming from a bank that took billions of dollars of bailout money, right? So that, like, everyone within J.P. Morgan wishes they could take back that tweet. And so I often wonder whether social is worth it for asset managers, considering our audience, if it's putting aside retail, considering our audience is, again, that's just not the way they overwhelmingly engage. As you've looked more and more at the data of who's reading what they're reading, you mentioned it earlier that the good news is the more thoughtful long form gets read more. What other trends have you seen in the data? Original research, we call them sort of the sleeper hits. Amy White is our research editor. Amy, like Leanna, worked with me at CIO Magazine and joined us here. There's a lot of academic work done on asset management. There's a lot of academics embedded in asset management, which is a story we're writing right now. There's all kinds of things to explore there. But there is a wealth of research around investing behavior, all this stuff. And so we are always looking for something that doesn't take a huge investment of time or money that really pays off with our audience. And that kind of stuff is gold. I think that asset managers are realizing this and producing more of it because we're a medium for distribution for that research. They should just be sending that right to their clients. It should be a benefit of being a client of asset manager X to get access to proprietary research about it. So those things we love, they're real sleeper hits. 
stuff that doesn't do well for us is, I would say, the stuff that P&I does pretty well. We can get some scoops on people moves when people in the industry pass away. We can get those. We don't really search them out because P&I has a larger team of journalists and does that very well. It's for the newswire stuff is not our gig. It's just not worth it for us. Before we switch over to some closing questions, we have to talk about this conferences. This is conferences are the engine of your business. I was kind of blown away when I asked you, how many of these conferences do you do a year? So why don't you give the kind of high level of that part of the business as well? I mentioned we have 2 million U.S. readers. So 99.9% of the people who are aware of Institutional Investor think of us as a media brand. And we are a media brand. But if you are a bean counter, we are an events business. They're not public, so I can't give actual numbers. But events started early on. Diane Alfano, our current CEO, was really the driving force starting in the 80s to build these events into what they are now. I think it's fair to say that Diane revolutionized the way events are done in this space. I had the pleasure of running a series of events for us, but I'm a steward of those events. I'm not the creator. And they are behemoths. It's a good extension of the media brand. The media brand at its best captures the attention of the 10 or 15,000 odd allocators who matter in America. It's probably 15,000 individuals who are really decision makers at the asset allocators. We take that attention and we monetize that attention by serving ads against it. That's a low margin business. If you can get those same people in a room and then be the one to also bring asset managers, investment consultants, bring the ecosystem together, that is a very powerful business that Diane and her team built over the years. And so we do around 100 events all over the world. We have events here in the U.S., of course, but we have them in Canada, Australia, Asia, Europe. And the model is extremely simple. We put together a conference agenda that will attract enough people, and then those people themselves will attract more people because endowment head X does want to talk to endowment head Y. And so you get that critical mass. And then... Uh, keeping in mind that it's still about that group. It's still about the allocators. You work with selective asset managers who want to further their distribution and client services aims. It's a really simple business model. And it's done very well by my peers here. And so I said, I run the Institutional Investor Institute and the Alternative Investor Institute, which are our largest institutes. We hold a series of events around the country focused on different allocator types. So next week I'm in Chicago with sort of a pan-institutional audience, but investment consultants as well. And they're super fun. So for the people that are throwing events, maybe for their own annual meeting or whatever it might be, what makes an engaging piece of content at events? Because we've all gone to them, and most of them, you're excited to go and you walk away going, eh. I agree with you. Most events are garbage. And it's my job to make the event as high caliber as possible. And so we use those same principles that I've been talking about on stage. So next week, I'm doing a Q&A with George Walker, Newberger Berman. As I design out that Q&A, I will think about those exact same things. I already have the access. He's on stage with me. He can't go anywhere. The thing is to get disclosure. In this case, it ties into conflict. I want him to be brutally honest about what he sees as the trajectory of asset management, 
the role of consultants, the demands being made on his firm by asset allocators. I want for him to paint a holistic picture and not just say things that are in Neuberger Berman's interest. And so that's a clear example, but that is the case for every panel or anything we put on stage. We don't want people to be able to Google it because we want it to be set on stage first. When we write the titles and summaries of those panels, we're using the same principles that we use online because we're online, you're competing with the 18 other tabs open. At a conference, I'm competing with their phones. Everyone's addicted to their phone. They want to go in the lobby and check their email. The best panel we did all year, and it's not a coincidence, it was a young man named Dan Rasmussen. Dan Rasmussen wrote the most popular article on II all year. And a profile of Dan was the most popular article on II last year. Dan does not have the asset management disease. He does not want to agree with you. And so we had him debate a guy from Cambridge Associates on the correct amount of private equity in an allocator portfolio. The Cambridge guy who was playing a foil, and he did it wonderfully, said, you know, 35 to 40. Dan said, zero. (laughs) And I have never been in a room at any conference, Milken, Delivering Alpha, anywhere, where I was standing next to the stage moderating this, and not a single person was on their phone. They were all staring as Dan Rasmussen basically told them their entire worldview was bullshit. And then at the end of the panel, I said, who agrees with Dan? 90% of the hands went up. And then Dan, because he is quick, goes, yeah, but none of you are going to do anything about it. And so that is the perfect panel. He's done exactly what we spoke about earlier. I've got access to people who have real opinions. They're telling me something that you're not getting many anywhere else. Narrative, that's my job as a moderator, to make sure it's flowing well. And then conflict. You couldn't have more conflict. So that is sort of the gold standard of what we do. There are some very bad panel formats. Tell me your worldview. Never again will I moderate a panel where I, I'm going to listen to chief economist's worldviews. <laughs> All right. Well, Kip, it turns out for the last time you were on, we have a completely different set of closing questions, maybe with the exception of the first one. So here we go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work or family? And if it's building walls? It was building walls. <laughs> I would extend it to anything that's like rural dad. I've taken up golf, which I love. I have two chainsaws now, so I like cutting down trees. I am hoping that in the future, in the next year, there will be a very big wall project, though, where I get to use my Pennsylvania Fieldstone and just stack beautiful walls for for meters on end. All right. What's your biggest pet peeve? I hate in creative meetings when people go straight to talking about lack of resources. I always like to break the discussion into two parts. What can we do? And then how do we actually do it with the resource? And I get immensely frustrated. And I do it too, everyone. Your pet peeves are usually just as much about yourself as anyone else. When people go directly to the resource question because they seem to not even want to have the creative question. And those creative questions are the fun ones, right? I assume it's the same for investing. I assume that the market might not be big enough, but it's a great trade. Let's talk about the great trade first. The second, and this is more mundane, I've been blessed with amazing deputies. Just phenomenal deputies. The thing I like about the most is I never have to follow up. I ask for something to be done, and I never even have to follow up anymore because the trust is there. 
And so the flip side of that pet peeve is when you have to follow up with people who are expected to follow through. Mm -hmm. What reading do you almost never miss? I, as I said, a voracious reader. I have sort of a morning routine. There's certain emails. I read the Axios email every morning because I'm a political junkie. I do my CNN check to make sure the president's still the president in the morning. (laughs) The New Yorker is still the single best source of journalism in the world today. And every week there is something in that magazine that demands time. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I would say it's a teaching that my parents taught me, but I have been blessed with phenomenal mentors, most of them through rowing. I was a professional rower for a number of years. And they all sort of had the same mantra that my father had. He was a rower as well. And so it makes sense. It's you start a job, you finish a job. I remember I was in England going to school and on Australian coach to McLaren, who's a legend in the rowing world, some of the younger kids were supposed to clean up the van and they only had done a half-assed job. And Tim in his Australian voice said, you start a job, you finish a job. These kids just went ash and white. And I thought that is my life motto. You start a job, you finish a job. All right. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you learned a lot earlier in your life? As I mentioned earlier, deputies. My life is immensely enjoyable, not because it's easy, but because other people are supporting me. And so I've mentioned Alicia Patel, who is a longstanding deputy on the event side, is now off to Stanford Business School. Just a phenomenal deputy. Say Jum, her replacement, and then Leanna Orr, Amanda Cantrell, all these people. I cannot say enough about how good they are at their jobs. And I wish I had learned a lot earlier that delegating empowers. A lot of people don't delegate because they're worried they're going to delegate their own job away. I hope I can delegate my own job away because it gives me time to think about other things that we could be doing in Institutional Investor, other businesses, more aggressive journalism, better stories, better events. And so the one thing I wish I learned like straight out of college or even before was that like get the best deputies you can and they will make your life heaven. All right. Kip, thanks so much, bud. Thanks so much for doing this as always. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.